but I want you to do the intro. I'm excited. <laughs> All right, here's the intro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dedicated Nerds Podcast, Episode 6. I'm Rob Fiorandino, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dave. Hello, Dave. Good morning. And Carney. Hello, Carney. Hello. And uh, we're going to talk about some nerdy stuff today. But first, we're going to start with Carney. Carney has we have some follow up on Carney's. Carney, you have you have a new purchase? Tell us about it. Yes, just had a birthday, and um, for my birthday, I got a tablet, a Lenovo ten-inch tablet. And the previous discussion is that I was really interested in a tablet, basically as a book reader primarily, but I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. I ended up having a chance to spend a day or so playing with it, and I can honestly say I'm thrilled with this tablet. Nice. I'm not sure if which, it's just Which one do you have? The Lenovo 4 10-inch tablet, 32 gigs. The Tab 4? I, maybe. <laughs> I just, thought it was just I just Googled four. Lenovo tablets. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, tell, me, tell us about it. Well, I really don't know what to say. I've... The cameras work, but I'm, you know, cameras gotten better than I ever need them to be years ago. So, they, you know, they're good, but I, I can't tell you if they're great or anything. But what impressed me about it is this thing has two speakers at the top. I expected them to sound like, you know, a music box going ding, 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 ding. And <laughs> what instead I find is that while they're definitely not, you know, listening to music quality, if you're, you're an audiophile, it's perfectly good for you know watching a movie or something. Netflix works great. YouTube. I would suggest listening. I would suggest our listeners listen to podcasts on their tablets. There, it would actually <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, I was just I'm just very pleased with it. The battery life is much better than the phone. It's not quite up to a dedicated book reader, but those only have to push a weak processor and a very low energy screen. This has got a very nice screen on it, and you know it's the ten inch screen. I'm I'm looking yes. at here. Is that right? Ten point one. That's nice. And Amazon. It looks like Amazon's got the uh, sixteen gigabyte version for about one hundred and forty eight dollars. And it uh, looks like if you wanted to bump up to 32 gigabytes, you could go to $177. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's, about what that's I very affordable it. and nice. That's nice. That's good. Yeah, and like I said, it's, for me, it's, it's like holding an actual book in my hand. Mm -hmm. You know, with I can adjust the display to where it's the same paper white. In fact, hang on a sec. I want to pick up a book from around here. And, ah, of course, all my books are out of reach. Yeah, it's it's the the your standard paperback book is actually quite a bit smaller than the screen, and at least in my case, I find it easy to hold in one hand for extended period of time. So I'm just thrilled as can be. And the my only downside to it, as I say, is that of course it being a commercial product, it has bloatware on it, and you have to spend time rooting that out and getting rid of Alexa and you know a thousand and one mm. other idiotic apps that you don't use. But once you've done that, it's an it's a very nice tablet. I'm very pleased with it. So when you're reading, do you hold it landscape or portrait mode? Portrait. I do okay. it portrait. Oh, no. Okay, cool. So it's like, so yeah, it would be significantly bigger than a a, a regular book then. Yeah, which is, 
in case anybody listening doesn't know, I have vision problems. So being having nice big print, well lit, means a lot to me. This, this yeah, yeah, and you can read it in a room without having the the lights turned to uh, to nuclear levels. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. how did you know that's uh, how I have to do it to read? Well, because I do know because I know a little bit about optics, and I know that when things are brighter, uh, eyeballs can focus better, and I have the same issue. So, in fact, um, we, as you get as one gets older, one likes to have their lights on a lot brighter in general. Which brings up something: we just bought a we just bought a bunch of two hundred watt LED lights. So, oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, a two hundred watt equivalent, not two hundred yeah. watt. LED oh right, times. no, yeah, I mean the mind boggles. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be exactly. an orbital laser. <laughs> you're, you're right, Your right. LED light is ready for a strike now, sir. You got, you got, right, you've got a street light in your house. <laughs> Are you kidding? Our street lights couldn't light up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh. <laughs> I don't want me to start bitching about that. No, no, that's all right. Um, oh, that's cool. That sounds great. That sounds. That's. I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised that how how good a hundred and seventy seven dollar uh, tablet can be. So, does it come with a keyboard too? No, it doesn't. Um, it, okay, it's got Bluetooth though, so I can get a Bluetooth keyboard if I want to. In fact, I probably okay. will sometime in the near future. You know, it's just one step at a time kind of thing. Sure, sure. No, I found that, I mean, I have an iPad, and I've had an iPad for years, different, different models, and I, I've been, recently I've been editing the podcasts on the, uh, on the iPad, and now all of a sudden I have a need for the keyboard, because it's really nice to have all the hotkeys, but I went for years without really needing, I mean, if you're, if you're kind of using it for media consumption, then I don't know that a keyboard is necessary, maybe you'll have different needs than I will, but if you're going to read and... I'm sure you can watch Netflix on it if you wanted to. And I can. You know, I, I tested that already. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. But you don't need a keyboard for that stuff, I wouldn't think. Let me throw out one other thing here I wanted to say is that I'm a comic book fan. And for quite a while, I haven't really been able to read comic books. Uh, comic, you know, An actual paper comic is hard for me to, to deal with because of all the shadings and different colors. And on my computer... You can't get the kind of bubble expansions that you get that are built into most comic electronic format. So I had a, well, you don't, I will tell you it was a, the first six volumes of The Runaways on my Google account. So I pop and pull it up on my tablet and it's like, I can read this. I can actually read comics again on this. Yeah, and if you're into the Marvel comics, you can get Marvel Unlimited, which I tried out last month and I'm uh, I'm actually thinking about getting a new iPad just so I can read the comics well and and edit podcasts and other things. But yeah, comic reading on podcasts has gotten a a, a lot better, and I really enjoy the ability to kind of go. I mean, I, I'm assuming did you use Comicsology or something where you can kind of go frame by frame through it as opposed to even having to look at the whole screen? I'm assuming um, that's how you got it bigger, right? Um. No, I just bought it through Google Play. It's built into at least the okay. um, one that I got. What what I'm talking about is when you tap on the, the the right hand of the screen, I assume that's configurable, it pops up the first bubble, text bubble, on that page. And when you yeah. tap the screen again, it goes to the next. It basically, 
you start off with it just like a normal page, but when you tap the screen, the bubble pops up so you can read it. Then you tap it and it moves on to the next bubble. You mean like a text bubble? The text bubble or like the whole frame? Just the text bubble. Oh, I see. So it makes it a lot easier to just read the text. Well, that's very handy. Yeah, I mean, it's great because you can look at, I can see the, the, the comic and then, but you know, I'd have to strain to read the little print, but now it pops up, I read it and it shrinks back down and ah. That's yeah. wonderful. Well, that's, I mean, I, I've been thinking a long time that technology is. Finally getting to where it's useful. Yeah, technology, comics have to adapt to the technology if they're going to be successful. And a lot of comics now are are becoming much more digital friendly. And I, I like I said, I tried out the, the Marvel Unlimited app, and it's got the ability to, you know how sometimes you'll take, you'll see a comic book and it's divided into maybe like four frames. Right. And it, it'll just go through frame by, it'll just make like that frame will be big and it'll fill the whole screen, which is awesome because then the artwork's bigger too. And then you can kind of tap and it'll go frame by frame through that page. Or, um, I need to or, check it out. Marvel yeah, Unlimited, it. you said? Marvel Unlimited, yeah. And you can get like a one-month uh, free subscription. And I think it's one if you pay for it, it's like $10 a month. And it's got, I mean, it's got stuff that goes back to the, to the 50s and 60s um, on it. It's got... I was reading, what was I reading? I was reading some of the original Captain America stuff. I was reading the new Captain Marvel, um, which is really good. The the Captain Marvel that came out a few years ago, um, where it, I think it's a she now. Carl Denver. Yeah. And uh, where she, like the old Captain Marvel died and she got her powers or she got his powers. And that's a really good series. That's also on the Marvel Unlimited thing. Um, So, yeah. I do do want to point out that the technology I was talking about, I was testing it out on a comic that came out 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. apparently, you can, that's you know, even if you're buying it through a different source, you, there's amazing technology that makes it better. All right, cool. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that your your purchase was wonderful, and uh, and we'll expect regular updates on the new tablet because that sounds exciting. I mean, I I mean, everybody knows about the iPad. I don't. They've kind of. I mean. And to be honest, the Android tablets has kind of been getting kind of shit on in the in the media because they're an afterthought, right? Yeah, the, the, the for a lot of for a lot of developers and hardware developers, they're an afterthought. But these Lenovo right. ones are, are, I think, is pretty slick. That's cool, and I think that I mean, I think the the knock has been that that the Android operating system isn't really, they haven't, Google hasn't done a lot of work on the Android operating system the way that Apple has done on the, on the iOS to make it, you know, kind of more, to make it more optimized for a tablet where you've got certain functions where you can, like on the iPads, you can do side by side apps, um, kind of like you can do in windows as well, uh, or the Mac, uh, Mac OS, which is kind of cool. But you know, I mean, for a 10 inch for what you're going to use it for, I, I'm guessing it's great. Yeah, and here's the th- the test I would apply if you're a listener, is that if you're happy doing stuff on your phone, but you wish it was a little bit bigger, the uh, tablet, Android tablet, is definitely for you. You know, if what you're looking for is something that's basically a computer that you can, you know, a desktop computer that you can carry around with you, then maybe this isn't for you. I mean, you're looking for an iPad. So we've got uh, in the notes it uh, mysteriously says French Guyana. What's what's that all about? I am Carney gets to hog the screen again. 
Um, just a brief thing. There was a discussion about the launch site in French Guiana. I was reading about the Ariana 6 um, rocket that they're desperately trying to get operational to compete with Falcon X. And there was some discussion about the various launch sites that are in service around the world. And the point came up, which I knew this, but I never really thought about it, was that French Guiana's location on the equator gives it a huge advantage as a rocket port. Is that the discussion I was reading was basically saying that our identical rockets launched from Canaveral and Guiana, the one in Guiana could put 20% more payload into orbit just because of the boost in speed from the rotation of the Earth. And it's about 35% more than the same rocket launching from, uh, I can't pronounce it, the Russian Cosmodrome, Biokuntar. And is that, why is, why is that? Is it because it's closer to the equator? Yeah. At the equator, you're doing 1,000 miles an hour. At the poles, you're doing zero. That extra 1,000 oh. miles an hour adds 20% to your load. Oh, interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, so it made me wonder is that maybe we should, instead of ba- building Kennedy at um, in Florida, we should have gone to U.S. Virgin Islands or someplace. Puerto Rico. Yeah. That's still re- off of the equator, but that's, an, you know, another 10% of your payload. Yeah, it might be worth it's thinking not, about. Puerto Rico's about halfway in between Miami and the equator as far as north-south. Yeah, so, so I'm third. figuring another 10%. Is that from yeah. Kennedy to the equator, you get a 20% boost. You know, or maybe we should invade Columbia. That's right. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was bad. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> you, you shouldn't. That was a joke. Ha ha. Americans, we're so funny. Yeah. <laughs> we're so funny. Moving right along. Moving right along. Well, All right, cool. Well, that's cool. The, so, at some point, with ahead. the kind of cash that we're talking about here, you can probably afford to build a platform at sea. You want to know the, the main the main limitation, and yeah, and actually, that's been done before for smaller rockets. The main limitations is you need to have the shipping and all the support stuff, which means, you know, in the case of say a Falcon X, a Falcon Nine rather rocket, you need to figure out some way of getting five hundred tons of cryogenic liquid stored. You know, and if you're launching mm-hmm. once a week, you got tankers pulling up, and you know, it, you you need something more than just a oil drilling rig, unless you really want to aggravate yourself. Yeah, and there is a fair amount of infrastructure and uh, human capital available at, in Florida that would not be would not be available to us. And I'm guessing that all those SpaceX employees might not enjoy moving to French Guiana. Actually, French Guiana is a nice place. It's got, uh, if I remember yeah, right, but the it's... highest standard of living in um, the South America, for instance. I mean, it's 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 a modern place, but it's still you're on the equator in the jungle. <laughs> Although, to the on the plus side, you don't have to live in Florida, so there's that. <laughs> that's that's actually remembering that I spent many years <laughs> in Florida. I wouldn't oh, make yeah. jokes about that because what you said was God's own truth. <laughs> well, that's why Oh, the, the jokes usually aren't funny unless they're true. <laughs> so, well, one of the other topics we've got here is uh, speaking of uh, Cape Canaveral, uh, the Falcon, we've got some, some pretty cool Falcon news. Uh, Carney, why don't you take us through that? Well, you put it up there. 
Okay. Um, Falcon 9. <laughs> I put it up there for you, pal. <laughs> Falcon, li- Falcon 9, Block 5, second launch, went flawless, put the heaviest satellite in quite a while. I want to say heaviest satellite ever, but that may not be true. But seven tons or so of satellite into orbit for telecom. Uh, flawless launch, recovered the booster. You know, it looks like the Falcon 9 Block 5 is now fully operational. This is where you're supposed to read that tagline. The, uh, oh, yeah, the Mars Technica. <clears throat> this is the Mars Technica. This is, yeah, the, the, you, you can read along with me. Now witness the firepower of this fully operational Falcon 9 rocket. Rocket. Oh, fuck it up. Yes. Screwed it up. Oh, well, Still good enough. Now witness the firepower of this fully <laughs> operational Falcon 9 rocket. <laughs> we'll put in put in some good sound effects there. Yeah. It, it's just that things are progressing. It was a night launch, so I'm kind of jealous that I wasn't there. And Ars Technica, there's a link in our notes, had some pictures, some awesome yeah. pictures of the rocket transitioning it as it got up the sun hit it and then it went supersonic and you have these prismatic mock rings that formed around the yeah. rocket contrail that's just it's it, great yeah it looked like something a, a lot of these are by a guy named a guy, uh, these are uh, these are all by a guy named Trevor Malman and go to his website if you can um, it's got some amazing pictures he does like super short exposure photos and and changes his it, the way he does his photography is great and you can see like even like the the engines when they're firing you can see kind of what the 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 burning material is doing in there it's just stellar photography love it so he's i've i've been i've been actually looking at his um photographs for some time and i'll put his uh i'll put his website in the show notes as well yay Boeing and SpaceX. Let's go. Yeah, let's talk about Boeing and SpaceX crew capsules. What are we? What are we talking about there? We're talking about bureaucratic nonsense, is what we're talking about. Oh, excellent, good. Well, this will be more timeless because we do record our podcasts several weeks before they come out, so we try, we try not to be too uh, too timely. But uh, you know, government and bureaucracies—that's timeless stuff, right there. <laughs> yeah, it, it never it never gets old. <laughs> never. No, it really doesn't. No, it's what, just that uh, both what's the and, news here? Both Boeing and SpaceX are trying to get their crew capsules operational, which means going through a whole lot of rigmarole. A lot of it necessary and a good idea, and some of it not necessary and not a good idea. Um, Boeing is having is having some problems with their crew capsule. The details are a little fuzzy, but from what I gather, okay. Hold, can I stop you before you go on there? Let's. T- I want to take just a step back because I want to make sure I understand here. So. SpaceX is obviously making crew capsules for their own rockets. Uh, are Boeing is Boeing making the the crew capsules for the I can't remember the name of the government one, the na- the launch vehicle that the government's um, making, that NASA's making. I knew it right up until you said that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah but is, is, they're, so, they're making it for their own launch vehicles. Yes, but is that the same one that NASA's develop? Is Boeing no. developing it for NASA? Oh, okay. Well, how much? So take a step back and the, walk uh, us. Well, no, just take us briefly through. Give me, give me the what launch vehicles are being developed right now. The, well, the, big here, ones. Here, the launch vehicle is separate from the capsules. Um, the right. deal okay. is, is that NASA is working, and I'm sure Boeing's involved in it. With um, is working on their their big rocket, the SLS 
which is SLS. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that's a, a long winded topic all of its own, which stands um, for, which stands for space launch system. Yes. And that is, and that Boeing has a page on their website for the, uh, for the SLS as well. Oh, I'm sure they're, they're, they're they almost have to be involved in it. I mean, anything that isn't right. SpaceX, which is completely self-contained, Boeing is going to be involved in some manner just because sure. they have a lot of the science. You know, even if you're doing your own rocket, you probably have Boeing parts and Boeing contractors involved. So Okay, okay. Uh, now, other than, after the SLS, Boeing is working on its own crew capsule, which is, you know, a get to the space station without having to give the Russians money. And SpaceX is working on a crewed version of their Dragon cargo capsule, which is, again, as they get to the space station without giving the Russians money project. Um, okay. All of them. And aren't the Russians having some issues anyway with their the Russians system? Are always, the Russians are always having issues. Their main issue is that they're running out of money and they can't afford huh. to develop new ones. Yeah, <laughs> their, their old ones are are the, the absolutely wonderful late '60s technology, completely reliable, and will co- probably continue flying well into the middle of the next century. <laughs> they're right there going. Right. I mean, it's cheap. It works, and as long as everybody else keeps screwing around, they're going to keep launching this thing and charging people for it. So that's so that's eventually going to go. I'm, we're assuming then that the Russian thing is eventually going to go away, and that's why they're we're developing other ways to. To not pay the Russians money. Uh, you inverted that. Well, I know. It was, yeah. No, for I mean, several it's, reasons. It's we're tra- the, we're, 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 the Russian okay, thing ahead. is not going away until we make it go away. But as soon as somebody comes up with anything that's cheaper, the Russians are screwed. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Yeah, I understand. I mean, what I, was trying, what I was trying to get to in a kind of a weird roundabout way is that there's multiple reasons for us to develop our own mm-hmm. system to get to the ISS. Definitely, yes. Yeah. So, tell us about uh, the, the, the news. Now, with that kind of background knowledge, tell us what's what's the news that's happened recently. Well, the Boeing was presumably ahead of on the certification race, but um, they recently went through a testing procedure, and they had a problem. And what I gather is that the problem amounted to a propellant leak in the crew maneuvering system. And... Given that they're using, um, I believe, hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide as their propellants, a leak of either of those is a really bad thing, especially. I've I've heard those words before, but I don't know exactly what those are. So, let's see: poisonous, acidic. um, Yeah, bad stuff. Yeah, you know, take your pick, and one of those two, they have the virtue of being storable at room temperature. That's their only virtue. Everything else about them is incredibly nasty, from the odor to the toxicity. And and I assume they're flammable. (laughs) That's the least of the problems with them, actually. Well, no, no, that's not a problem. That's a feature. Yeah. I mean, if it's a propellant, it doesn't need to burn. <laughs> yeah, but the, the the burning thing is if you've got a leak, the burning thing is actually the last thing you worry about with hydrazine because, it, among other things, it'll dissolve people. It's toxic as hell. It's got a low vapor pressure. I mean, this is the, – the book I like to refer to on propellants is something called Ignition by a guy named Clark, and as he puts it, it's a, they're very nice for propellants. Go ahead. 
No, that's it. You know, is that for propellants, oh. you know, this is, this is good stuff. The, 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 it only gets worse from here. <laughs> gotcha. So the book is Ignition, an informal history of liquid rocket propellants. Yes, that's the one. And it's Which it's if you want the hardcover version, it's $175. But the paperback <laughs> yeah. version is out there for $22. And there's a Kindle version, too. I'll put this in the show notes. And uh, if anybody wants to read more about rockets and and uh, well, tell us what's the book what's the, yeah tell me tell us what's the book about it's really about the book is about the history of re- the development of rocket propellants and what the book really is it's, a, it's a really a chemistry book but it's a funny book and it hmm. gives you a lot of background into what's going on with the research in rockets it starts off with giving you some backstory on Werner von Braun and the people who came before and Goddard and then it goes through the whole Cold War space race basically where we had the whole science establishment desperately coming up with better propellants storable propellants you know less toxic propellants propellants that would work in the Titan ICBMs and so forth and you know mm-hmm. And it gives you some overview of what was going on in the Soviet Union at the time, where, you know, it was a completely separate track, and yet chemistry being chemistry, it was much alike. Mm-hmm. And it just got, it's got a lot of antidotes that are humorous, like the time that the researchers got attacked by bats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the time that they discovered that skunk oil was hypergolic with nitric acid, and they fired a fairly large rocket motor on skunk oil and he talks about how the entire rocket research base i think it was redstone at the time was just blanketed in the odor of skunk for weeks at Mm -hmm. a time you know (laughs) then a similar discovery was made with lemon oil and then as he puts it there was delightful scent of lemon oil (laughs) it was a terrible propellant but it's worth mentioning because it was so much better smelling than any other rocket propellant so what's uh and I, I noticed that there's a there's a foreword by Isaac Asimov in the book, which is kind of cool. What's the time period that this book covers? Well, his personal experience. John Clark was a PhD in uh, chemistry, and he was he was right in the middle of the whole rocket development phase of chemistry. Um, the time period. There's a part that goes all the way back to the beginning, to you know Goddard and before but Mm -hmm. the the main thrust is about i would say 48 to maybe 65 68 okay you know at which point things went to solid fuels and and most of the research had been done most of the basic research had been done at that point cool yeah it sounds like an interesting book i will uh i will put that in the show notes and if you're interested in that kind of thing uh, give it a give it a read uh, what do you want to talk about, Dave? I'm just surprised that tydrazine can't be used as bat repellent, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, St- stop recording. I'm going to... Be- is that the story here is they were doing tests to see how sensitive the um, rocket propellant was to impact, you know, just one of- and they had this, this old destroyer turret that they used to do the test to contain the shrapnel, <laughs> which tells you something about how safety was handled back then. <laughs> Apparently, this turret had gotten filled with holes because of their tests, so they just put another layer of armor plate around this turret and continued on. Well, the space between the armor plate that they added and the original turret 
filled up with bats. And one happy day, they went out to do a new test after it had been sitting around for a while. And when the thing went bang, about 5,000 bats come boiling out of this turret and start attacking <laughs> everybody in sight. <laughs> and he did, the reading about it is just hysterical. Because apparently there were bats chasing people, bats. I mean, the bats were all confused because, you know, the sound apparently screwed up their ears or something. And they're just fluttering around, attacking everything. Uh, what do you want to talk about, Dave? Well, I did have a chance to review the article about uh, why we can't have nice things in space looking back in time. But So let's, uh, what did you think of that? Well, I guess my takeaway from that is, and, you know, since it's the only, I don't have much context, need to do a little more research, but I don't understand why we wouldn't just build something on the dark side of the moon. Oh, I, can't <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the article we're talking about is uh, apparently, and this is one of those, this, sounds, this sounded to me like one of those clickbait headlines, even though it was the Washington Post. Uh, NASA's $9.7 billion telescope is stuck on Earth. Well, it's not actually stuck on Earth. The launch is delayed. Uh, but it's being delayed until 2001, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. It's the uh, Hubble Space Telescope uh, replacement, I guess, or, or they're going to put it up there in addition to the Hubble. I'm not sure if they're going to decommission the Hubble. Call it a follow-on. Yeah, it's, fo- it's a follow-on. Sure, exactly. Um, the, the thing I found really interesting, and I'm not, sh- I don't, I didn't get this out of the article, but apparently you can't repair it in space, which I thought was like, well, that's an interesting design. I'm not sure. Do you remember, either of you, if the Hubble was originally designed to be uh, repaired in space or if they did that? It was not, right? So they just figured out a way to do it? Yes, because, well, you know, they fired $2 billion into space and it was worthless. They had to do something. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, yeah, (laughs) mirror issues, focus problems. They didn't have enough light in the rooms like us old people need, apparently. Well, I didn't get the impression it was unrepairable in space. It was just to get there and work on it and get back might be beyond our technology or beyond our budget if it's going to be sitting out as far as it is. You know, right. it's a lot it's a lot easier to work on something in orbit than going out basically into the middle of, you know, go out where you don't really have gravity to help you stop or start. You see so you're saying Dave is that the the orbit is is significantly farther than the standard geosynchronous orbit. Ah, uh, yes, I believe it's four times past the distance of the moon, which means uh, oh, about a million right. miles. Boy, that's a big detail I missed then. Yeah, I, I'm. No, no, four times the distance uh, to the moon, which I'm. Yeah, which I think that's not two hundred fifty thousand. That's more like one hundred thirty thousand, maybe. So, but yeah, four okay. times four times the distance of the moon. So, flying. Well, that's out to yeah, it, and our standard geosynchronous is what twenty two and a half. Yeah, twenty-two point four. The moon is two hundred and forty thousand. Is it two forty? Okay, I was. I so yeah, that's like a million miles away. Holy cow! That's yeah, so crazy. It's one percent of the way to the sun. Yeah, well, I can see why it would be very expensive to not have this. Uh, to it'd be very expensive to try to fix this telescope. I think part of it is just the, the after what happened to Hubble. There's no way in hell they're going to put that thing on a rocket until they're absolutely 1,100% sure that this thing is going to, in fact, work. (laughs) Right. Which I don't think there's any way 
that they could actually get a hundred percent certain because you're firing a damn rocket into space. It's going to, mm-hmm. there's always risk going to be involved. I mean, it could blow up on the launch pad for heaven's sakes. But I wouldn't say that to any of the engineers because they'd probably have heart palpations. <laughs> well, oh, I'm sure they've, well, they have to have already thought that. I mean, they're in the damn space program. They, I mean, they should know this. They, they do know this stuff. I mean, and I'm sure they're doing everything they can to make, make sure that it is, which is probably why it's being delayed to 20, 2021 but delayed a year or two yeah and the the web is a lot more complicated than the hubble too so you know mm-hmm. that it's it's nasa at its finest really is that nasa is good at doing stuff that's right at the cutting edge that has to work or you you know or you go home kind of thing they're not so good at doing 10 of something in a reasonable expedited manner. You know, you want to go, you want to send a probe to Saturn that's going to last 15 years, then NASA is the one you want to go to. You want, you want somebody to launch, you know, a bunch of confetti into near earth orbit for somebody's birthday. You probably don't want NASA to do this because by the time they're through, the person's died of old age. (laughs) All right. Well, we've had a very interesting, uh, fairly space focused, uh, podcast here today has been good i think i've enjoyed it i guess in that case i would like to say that the um the too complicated to one sentence thing the one that gave you a headache that's gaming really so and pop culture so we can talk about that next yeah time. i mean we yeah, i guess i don't know what but was well let's actually let's talk about that now that's i i watched the so carney posted a video uh that gave me a headache. What was what was that video? Oh, you didn't know? Okay, it's a game. I didn't. I don't know what that was. I mean, it looked like uh, Dance Dance Revolution or something like that to me. You know what? That's exactly. It's Dance Dance Revolution. What it is? It's Dance Dance Lightsaber. <laughs> what oh, what wow. it is? It's okay. a VR game where apparently you've got a blue lightsaber in one hand and a red lightsaber in the other hand, and you've got it, and then. You basically have boxes flying at you, red and blue boxes, and you got to get the oh. blue boxes with the blue saber, and the, and the, then you've got to dodge stuff that's coming at you, and it's all to music. And the whole thing, I looked at this, and I'm going, if I tried this, I'd throw up in my helmet. <laughs> do we do we know what the uh, the name of the game is? Uh, Beat blade or beat a beat saber, maybe? Yes, I think that's it. Yes, okay, beat saber. So, so we'll put that in there as a. I'll put that in the show notes as well. The, the YouTube video for beat saber. Dun dun dun. Yeah, it. I saw it, and it it struck me for several reasons that it would be good for the podcast. One is that this is the. It was sort of like a pretty cool take on you know i mean most of the vr games that i have seen advertised and videoed are basically i mean i'm sorry but they're lame compared to most of them you know it's, it's basically right you know nothing much more than the Wii, where you're pl- pretending to play tennis only now you've got a headset instead of staring at a screen this looked like it was really different and was like oh this is, this is kind of weird and cool and then when you threw it in that the one i posted has got this um 
cool Japanese band, which I still haven't found the English version of, but I found a whole bunch of their music, and I rather like it. It's J-pop. Uh, basically, it's just cool J-pop music wedded up to lightsabers and VR, and it was like, yeah, this is this is this could almost get my this could almost get me doing VR. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. There's there's definitely some cool uh, VR stuff. I I've tried some of the VR stuff. We have some clients who've investigated VR. We never actually ended up using any of it. I did some video shooting on some of the on some 360 cameras as a test and. It's getting there. It's it's. I think it's still too much, in my opinion. There's still too much um, technology required and technological expertise required for it to become mainstream. I think. I don't think it's going to get there until we see something like we saw in Ready Player One, yes. where basically it's just a headset that you put on, and that's it. Or gl- maybe headset and gloves, or headset and con- some controllers. But in my opinion, it's got to be all wireless before it's going to be mainstream. And you got to come up with some way of having people. You need room for it, and you need something like they had in again in right. Ready Player One, where you've got a treadmill or something. Because just being in your room and bouncing up and down in one place, like well, like you yeah. do with the Wii, you know, it's hard to turn that into a. a it's going to come in stages. I think it's first thing you're going to have. It's going to be you know first thing we've got what we've got now with the Oculus and the PlayStation VR is a good product if you're into that kind of thing. And there's some add-ons for phones where you can put phones. I have one where I can put my iPhone in a headset and that works pretty well. Um, but it's right now, it seems like it's the best use for it. In my opinion is watching things as opposed to actually playing things where you're moving around because it's, it's cool to like, Oh, I'm in here at a Broadway show and look around and I can see the whole stage. That's really cool. And I think once that gets to the point where you can do that wirelessly, um, that's going to be great. Or maybe you want to go to a sporting event and you're sitting in different seats or whatever. I don't know. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what comes up, um, from that perspective. I guess my thought on it is how, how much would be, how much space are you willing to commit to it? And how much money are you willing to commit to it? So you can play that lightsaber game to play the lightsaber game, zero and zero to be able <laughs> to VR, say world of Warcraft. Yeah, we could, I, I mean, I could see spare bedroom being converted into, I mean, my wife already does the Wii stuff, so she'd be for it. The main problem might be us fighting over who gets the VR, but. Oh, everybody's got to have their own, man. Yeah, that that, that creates another set of problems. So, but D- yeah. What about what about you, Dave? I mean, does it does any of that appeal to you, or are you kind of not interested at this point? No, the price for entry is way too high for what's available to do. Um, yeah, I agree. So I'm I'm not feeling like an early adopter for that. You know, give it three to five years. Maybe I'm being you know, maybe I'm giving you know, thinking it's going to take come more slowly than that it will. But I guess I also I feel like uh, AR has a lot more potential for being useful and interesting over the next five years than than vr so maybe once my eyes get bad enough and i can't tell the difference between vr and and real life then that'll be about the time it'll work (laughs) no i think you're exactly right i mean right now the real power of vr and ar for that matter is the ability to do walk through you know for, for anything from 
being able to walk through a house that's for sale to a tour of the space station. You know, what Friday was talking about, being on the stage at, you know, uh, something on Broadway. A Broadway theater, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, and that way you can you can move around and see things from different angles, which is hard, you know, you, you can't really do looking at a flat screen, but as a game the, the 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 human part just isn't there yet yeah but wouldn't it be awesome to go to a i mean just put on your goggles and you're in a planetarium or something and you can look around at space and you can poke at planets and have them kind of zoom up or whatever i can see a lot of really really cool applications for that yeah yeah the problem is, is you need to have more than just one cool application you know totally no and i think it i think it's going to be the hardware thing in my opinion i think it's going to be hardware led as soon as the hardware gets cheap enough and uh, fast enough wirelessly i think that's when the real revolution is going to happen otherwise i think it's too much hassle for my dad to do so we're going to have a new uh we're going to have a new segment um this week and i'm springing this on my two co-hosts uh at the last minute that's my fault. I should have told him in advance. Um, but frankly, to be honest, I just had the idea about 20 minutes ago. So uh, what we're going to do is at the end of each show, we're going to share some things that have been good that uh, we've experienced this week, whether it's in technology or out of technology. And I'm going to start with a, a show called Churchill's Secret Agents. It's a new show on Netflix, and they're not a sponsor. Uh, but hey, Netflix, give me a call. We'll talk. Uh, but anyway, Netflix Secret Agents. It's a show. Um, it's a. It's kind of a. It's a very interesting blend of shows. I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, it's called. Um, it's a combination historical documentary and reality game reality competition show, where it's fascinating. I'll post an article about it. Um, on, in the show notes, but uh, basically they take these uh, maybe dozen regular people and they put them through the training that uh, that um, England people in England went through to become part of the special operations executive, which was kind of their secret behind the scenes uh, early predecessor to the the MI6 James Bond service. Um, and the SAS. And the SAS and all that, right. And that was done, uh, and, and so anyway, so the doc, it's kind of a half documentary where they they give you a lot of, bit, a lot of history about it and they show lots of um, kind of original footage, but then they've also got these 12 modern people kind of in period costumes, kind of like, it's almost like a reenactor thing. Um, and they go through the actual training and they, and they have like generals, people who are former military people like doing the actual training and they use the same manuals that they used in world war two and the same judging, you know, so they kind of try to put, and it's, it's really cool. It's, I mean, if you like, if you like either one of those things, if you like, uh, historic, if you like world war two or historical documentaries about world war two, or if you're a fan of, uh, if you're a fan of reality shows and maybe want to get something that's a little meatier than, uh, your typical, uh, uh, a survivor episode, then uh, it's pretty cool. So there's my entry in new things, good things this week. Next week, we'll all have something cool to, to pass along. Absolutely. All right, excellent. Well, say goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye, all. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.